Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said, into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldiers knew, someone had blundered. Theirs was not to reply, theirs was not to reason why, theirs was to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Cannons to the right of them, cannons to the left of them, cannons in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at them with shot and shell. Boldly they rode and well. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the six hundred. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, Charging an army while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke. Cossacks and Russian reeled from the saber stroke. Shattered and sundered, then they rode back, but not, not the six hundred. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon behind them. Volleyed and thundered, stormed at, with shot and shell, while horses and heroes fell. They that had fought so well came through the jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of the six hundred. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade. Noble six hundred. That is the poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, penned by Alfred Tennyson, so-called Lord Tennyson. The Light Brigade were a small unit of cavalry, light cavalry, that were ordered into their death during the Crimean War by British commanders. The Crimean is a peninsula in the southern part of Ukraine. At the time, the Crimean Peninsula belonged to the Ottoman Empire. And Russia, seeing that the Ottoman Empire, 500-year-old empire, was weak and couldn't defend itself very well, and Russia was gaining strength and gaining power and needed land, wanted land, lusted for land, and the Crimean Peninsula offered Russia not only good portage for a navy, but also rich land that it needed to fill its growing empire desires. And so Russia attacked the Ottoman Empire. Russia initiated war with the Ottomans with the express purpose of taking the Crimean Peninsula. 
And so Russia initiated the Crimean War, what many have called the true First World War. I would say, no, I would say that there was what was true World War before that in the Napoleonic Wars. But, but the Crimean War is almost entirely forgotten today, including the charge of the Light Brigade. And the lessons of the Crimean War and the lesson of the Light Brigade that were so obvious at one point in time are now almost entirely forgotten. So today, in 2014, we have Russia and we have Ukraine and we have Turkey and we have America and we have Europe and we have all these people on the verge of war over Crimea. And we have people like John McCain begging for war, lusting for war. John McCain with blood dripping from his fangs, wanting and tasting war, desiring for it. And we have monsters like Barack Obama. And we have monsters like Putin wanting and desiring and lusting for war, for the deaths of young men, for the deaths of civilians. Desiring it, wanting it, needing it. That is the result of belief in the state. And the foolish herds of people, both in Ukraine, Russia, U.S., desiring to bring back up this war and fight it again, all fooled by their lust and all fooled by their own silly religion of statehood. The Light Brigade was a small group of British that were ordered into a valley that was heavily guarded, heavily fortified. And this small group of, uh, of lightly armed, saber-swinging cavalry charged uh, about 5,000 Russians and Cossacks and, uh, and were cut down pretty heavily. Let me read to you a, a segment of, of, of one of the witnesses of what happened. He wrote this. We advanced down a gradual descent of more than three quarters of a mile with the batteries vomiting forth upon us shells and shot, round and grape, with one battery on our right flank, another battery on our left flank, and all the Im- Im- intermediate ground covered with the with the Russian riflemen, so that when we came to within a distance of 50 yards from the mounds of the artillery, which had been hurling destruction upon us, we were, in fact, surrounded and encircled by a blaze of fire, in addition to the fire of the riflemen upon our flanks. As we ascended the hill, the oblique fire of the artillery poured upon our rear, so that we had thus a strong fire upon our front, our flank, and our rear. We entered the battery, we went through the battery, the two leading regiments cut down a great number of the Russian gunners on their onset. In the two regiments which I had the honor to lead, every officer with the exception of one was either killed or wounded and had his horse shot from under him. The regiments proceeded, followed by the second line consisting of two regiments of cavalry which continued to perform their duty, cutting down the Russian gunners. And so this is what was written about that as an eyewitness account. 
these 600 cavalry were thrown into this slaughter, and for what reason? To keep the Crimea out of the hands of Russia. And then the politicians sat at a table, and they made agreements, and Russia kept the Crimea, and England backed away and claimed victory. And that's how wars go. People die, and the politicians don't care. And then they make agreements, and the deaths of all the civilians and the deaths of all the military do not change the outcome, because it's all based on what happens at the table. And it's all based on what the politicians can agree upon. And so Russia aggressively and violently took the Crimea from the Ottomans. And that happened about the same time that the U.S. government involved itself in an almost identical operation. What you're going to hear today in today's podcast is going to be a rerun of the podcast that I did last year on the Mexican-American War. And as you hear this podcast, and if you've heard it before, give it a chance again and think about it in this in these terms. When the United States government was aggressively attacking a peaceful neighbor that was not in any way a threat to it, when the United States government decided that it wanted, it simply wanted territory and land, and Mexico had that land, and Mexico was weak, the Mexican government was in a weak position and could not even could not even send people to negotiate with the U.S. because the government was so was in such disarray. And at that moment, the American president aggressively and blatantly attacked Mexico and brought on the Mexican-American War. And the United States government horribly, horribly slaughtered not only Mexicans but American Indians and the natives of the Southwest and murderously stole all the lands of the Southwest, including Arizona, where John McCain supposedly represents. The United States government stole Arizona from Mexico the same way Russia stole the Crimea from the Ottomans. So if John McCain, with blood dripping from his fangs, were consistent or truthful, and if John McCain really cared about Crimea and really believed that the Russians have no right to Crimea, then John McCain should also believe that the U.S. has no right to occupy and control the lands of Arizona, New Mexico, West Texas, parts of of Colorado, Utah, Nevada, and California. If John McCain were consistent, then he would leave Arizona and not return. And if the Russians were consistent, they would do the same with Crimea, and they would leave the people of Crimea to, do, to make their own determinations. But none of these people can, can think in an honest and consistent way, because their minds are all twisted by their religious belief in the state. And so they maintain this desire for war. They maintain this, this oddity of where some 
young man out of twisted, of twisted silly peer pressure thinks that honor comes by obeying the will of government goons who tell him to go and die and to kill others. Out of a twisted sense of peer pressure, we're, we, we're told to call that duty and we're told to call that honor. And young men go out and murder and, and, and are killed. Why? So that politicians can sit at a table and negotiate who runs the Crimea and who owns Arizona. Today's Sunday, March 2nd, 2014. I'll probably get this posted for tomorrow, uh, Monday, March 3rd, 2014. And this is podcast number 365. My name is Ben Stone, and this is the Bad Quaker Podcast. And again, as you listen to today's podcast, which is a rerun from the podcast I did about the war on Mexico in uh, last year um, from the uh, 1850s, keep in mind that it... it it, that war took place almost the exact same time, just within a few years of the Crimean War, and that the lessons that could have been learned from the Crimean War and from the loss of the Light Brigade have all been thrown away. And keep in mind that the same act of aggression of Russia just deciding that it wants the Crimea, therefore it's going to take the Crimea. And the Ottomans are weak, therefore Russia will attack. That was the exact same reason that the United States attacked Mexico and stole from them the entire Southwest. And if you twist what I'm saying to think that the United States should give the Southwest back to Mexico, then you miss the entire point. Because no one in Mexico has the right to rule over people who live in Arizona or New Mexico or, uh, or anywhere else, even Mexico. No one has the right to rule over someone else. The United States government has no right to rule in Arizona. Mexico has no right to rule in Arizona. Russia has no right to rule in, Crimea, in the Crimean Peninsula. And the government of Ukraine is just as illegitimate today as it was in, in December. And, and it's just as illegitimate as the Russian government is. And it's just as illegitimate as the government in Washington, D.C. is. So with that in mind... Have a listen to today's podcast, which is uh, about the war on Mexico. Thank you very much. So now we're in this series. Uh, I'm doing this series here in build-up to December 7th, because every year around December 7th, there's a certain hype of nationality that sort of takes over the American discussion, and it, it becomes impossible to say anything about World War II or anything about the events of December 7th, 1941, without being attacked as, you know, somehow hating the military or somehow disparaging the people who lost their lives during that uh, horrible time. And, um, and this is really, uh, you know, it, it's really sad that you can't have just an honest discussion about an event without people just kind of turning their brains off and becoming com completely emotionally ignorant about everything and just, just, you know, they don't want to hear any talk of anything. Anything you say is bad. You hate America. You hate soldiers. You, you, you know, you're disrespecting the dead. All, all these ridiculous arguments. And then it's kind of like a month or so goes by, 
And then those same people, you can have a legitimate discussion with them about about the lies of December 7th, 1941. So in build-up to that, that's that's the, the purpose of this series. This is the second in the series. If you missed the first one, you might want to grab that before you listen to this one because, uh, you know, I, I re- I'll refer back to it. The first one in the series was on the War of 1812, and I uh, attempted to expose the lies of why the U.S. went into the War of 1812, what the result of the war was, who won. It certainly wasn't the U.S. And um, and and my reason in that, and the reason in doing the, the the podcast today that I'm going to be doing, by the way, on the on the Mexican American War, the reason is to show that you, if you're if you're an American, if you've been raised in American schools, in government schools, or in government approved schools, which that might be private schools, but they're still teaching the standard government line. If you've been raised in America receiving the government education from government approved schools, then you've been lied to about every single war that America has ever been engaged in. Now, the war, uh, the war of independence, and I like to call it a war of independence because it was not an American revolution. We were not revolting. Uh, we didn't attempt to take over, you know, uh, uh, London or anything like that. Well, that took place before the United States government existed. The United States government did not exist until well after that war was over. So the first official war that the U.S. government engaged in was the War of 1812, and it did so, as I as I pointed out in the in the uh, previous podcast on this topic, it did so for very flaky reasons. There's a lot of lies about the War of 1812. It was entirely a war of aggression on the part of the U.S. attempting to steal Canada and attempting to uh, uh, to annex Canada. And that was the whole purpose of it. And it was it was timed when it was because England was wrapped up in the Napoleonic Wars and really didn't have time to fight the U.S. And the, and the people in the U.S. who initiated the war made a lot of money off the war. That was the whole purpose. Okay, so uh, now the next major conflict that the U.S. government engaged itself in was the war on Mexico. And to a certain extent, um, well... Let me let me just cover this first. This and before I really get into the war in Mexico, again, my whole purpose in this is to have the conversation now before December seventh, so that when that time rolls around, when December seventh comes around, I can have uh, a lot more of an. Uh, I'll be a lot more at ease explaining to you that the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was entirely, well, they had no choice. The The U.S. government put Japan into a position where it felt it had absolutely no choice but to attack Pearl Harbor because it felt it was about to be attacked. The Japanese government felt they were about to be attacked. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll give you good reason for that when I get to that episode in this series. But my purpose now is to try to let you, if you can understand that you've been lied to about every single war the U.S. government has been engaged in, then it might be easier for you to understand that you've been lied to about why December 7, 1941 took place, why the attack on Pearl Harbor took place, and why the Japanese felt like they had absolutely no choice but to do that. Okay, so the government, here, here's some things I wanted to, I said this in the last uh, episode of this series, uh, so I want to say it again. Governments always lie to the people so that they can start wars. The more time goes by, the thinner that lie looks. Well, 
the U.S. invasion of Mexico may be the exception to that because, you know, there's not a whole lot of lies that the American government says about the war with Mexico. Um, the, the war with Mexico, it's also called the Mexican-American War. Mexicans general, general, generally refer to it as the first United States invasion because it was one of several times the United States has invaded Mexico. Officially, the war went from 1846 to 1848, two years, but it actually began in 1845 with the invasion of Mexico, um, the year before the, uh, the, the infamous Thornton affair uh, and the subsequent uh, declaration of war that came with that. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, one outstanding issue was the border dispute between Texas and Mexico. Texas uh, had never really settled their their issue uh, their border issue with Mexico before the US annexed Texas. Now the other big problem um there was a there was a problem with this disputed land between Texas and Mexico because actually neither Texas nor Mexico had a legitimate land claim on this land. The native anarchical societies had uh, held the expansion of Central American empires in check for thousands of years. No Central American empire had ever moved north past modern-day Monterey, Mexico, until the Spaniards invaded. Um, when the Spaniards invaded, they slowly chipped away at the native anarchist societies, one tribe at a time and one valley at a time, and they finally pushed their way forward up into northern Mexico. But the native populations were wiped out as much by smallpox and kidnapping for the purpose of the slave trade than they were by actual battles with the Spaniards. And this took place slowly across northern Mexico. But either way, when you get up into this disputed land, again, between uh, Mexico and Texas, um, that land was never conquered by Spain, and it was certainly never conquered by uh, Mexico, and it was never taken and occupied by, by, the, uh, by the new Texas government that, that formed after Texas's War of Independence. Now, I wanted to mention, I said something about the uh, kidnapping of the Native Americans and, uh, and using them in the slave trade. This was something that, that, um, that Spain did, and it was sort of one of the issues that helped spark the uh, revolution against Spain and the independence of Mexico from Spain. And a lot of people, there's a lot of confusion because um, kidnapping uh, from one tribe to another was relatively common among uh, North American natives, among the American Indians, but it, it, and it was never really understood by the Europeans as they came into North America uh, because it, it actually took place, the same kind of kidnapping took place in Northern Europe back during the, the clan days, you know, pre, uh, let's say, uh, pre-1000 A.D. or so, prior to the Christian expansion into Northern Europe, uh, clans regularly would have kidnapping raids where they would go to a rival clan and they would kidnap a, a couple children uh, from, from key... Uh, um, you know, key families in that clan. They would kidnap a couple children, and sometimes they would even leave one or two of their children in place of the kidnapped children. This was a fairly common thing. And this is also what was being done among the Native uh, American tribes in, uh, you know, among among the uh, uh, American Indian tribes in North America. They would regularly make raids on each other's tribes and kidnap children. One of the main reasons why is because 
um, it prevents war. It prevents war between the clans or in Northern Europe, but in the case of North America, it prevented war between the tribes. And the way it does that is if you know that your daughter or your son is a part of that neighboring tribe, you're much more likely to communicate with them in positive ways rather than having outright war and taking the chance of killing your child by accident or, or having your child die uh, you know, through, through war. So kidnapping for the Native Americans was, as weird as it may seem to us today, it was an accepted practice uh, in order to prevent war. And so oftentimes when the Indians would kidnap uh, European, you know, uh, white children, they would they would do so with that intent uh, to try to make sure that the that they were securing, um, you know, uh, uh, preventing war with the with the invading European whites. And of course, the, uh, the the invading European whites didn't understand that concept. It was completely foreign to them. So when uh, when Native Americans would kidnap their children, the uh, the white uh, invaders would be a little upset about this, and it would actually cause war. But um, but that wasn't you know that wasn't the case from tribe to tribe. It was this was a cultural difference that that the whites never really grasped. And I and to be fair, I don't think the the native Indians, uh, the Native Americans, really grasped it either. Well, this was going on in northern Mexico, and um, it was one of the issues that was going on there. So so Spain would kidnap uh, you know American Indian children and bring them into slavery. And American Indians would then go into Spanish or Mexican uh, families and kidnap because not only were they, uh, you know, that that old practice had sort of fallen away. They realized that that the Spanish were there as predators and, and they weren't going to be able to avoid war with them. But um, the Native Americans' uh, uh, populations were so decimated by smallpox and by this constant harvesting of their children for slavery that it was their, about their only way they could, you know, uh, uh, keep the numbers of their tribes up. So, uh, so then we come along to about 1810. And keep in mind now that Spain was in a very weakened position around this time because it had been, remember in the last episode when I was talking about the War of 1812, Spain had been uh, heavily involved in the Napoleonic Wars, especially in the sea battles, and it had cost them dearly. The, the English were just ripping them apart. And so, you know, the, and so the, the Spanish Empire was just bleeding, uh, in every direction. It was bleeding money as fast as it could, uh, to try just to, to keep up. So in 1810, um, the, the people of Mexico began a revolution against Spain and began, uh, fighting for their independence. And this war went on for 11 years. 11 years, the people of Mexico fought Spain for independence. Uh, one of the early things that the uh, that the new Mexican or you, that the Mexican rebels one of the early things that they promised was an end to slavery and end to this uh, this horrible practice that Spain had uh, had placed upon them. So so that was very appealing to a lot of the Mexican people. So after eleven years of just horrible war, uh, the Mexican people were able to throw off the yoke of Spanish control. And they became, uh, they became an independent country. The problem is, you know, in comes the new boss, same as the old boss. As it turns out, when the dust all settled, the Mexican people who were actually in charge of the government were all Spanish descendants and were essentially, you know, uh, 
yeah, sure, they were locally, you know, they were they were living in Mexico, but they were still Spaniards. So the the true Mexican people um, were not that much better off than they were under under Spain because essentially the same people were their rulers. So it didn't really settle the issue. This whole war from 1810 to 1821, and so many Mexicans died, and uh, and in a sense. They didn't really accomplish what they thought they would because revolution never does. Revolution never accomplishes what you think. And it always is just an exchange for one tyrant over the other. That's all it ends up being. So the central government, after the revolution was over and, uh, and this new Mexican government took, took control, this, this Mexican central government was corrupt and weak and there was rebellion and secession attempts, uh, just everywhere. Now, in 1822, this is, you know, one year after, um, after the revolution ended. In 1822, uh, there's a, an event called, uh, the Old 300, where, uh, uh, roughly 300, uh, folks from Missouri who immigrated into Texas. And this was, the Old 300 are considered, you know, they're the, uh, the original, um, uh, uh, American Texans that, that moved in. And at the time, there was a little hesitation, but they were welcomed in, and they were granted land, and, you know, they were, they were, uh, I wouldn't say they were welcomed with open arms, but they were allowed to come in and, uh, and immigrate in. Now, uh, that was in 1822. By 1829, um, Mexico officially abolished slavery. They attempted, like I said, in 1811 at the beginning of the revolution, but they couldn't really pull it off until 1829. But in the interim, between 1822, when the old when the old 300 uh, immigrated into Texas from the U.S. from Missouri, from there to 1829, there were just waves and waves and waves of people uh, immigrating, mostly out of the old South into Texas, mostly. Um, not necessarily slave owners, but certainly people who believed in slavery were uh, were just pouring in in waves into Texas from the Old South. Um, so in 1830, the Mexican government officially outlawed immigration into Texas. Now let this uh, let this soak in for a minute because there's some significance here if you think about it. From 1830 until when Texas fought its War of Independence. Uh, 1835 to 1836, during that five or six year period, it was illegal to immigrate from the U.S. into Texas. And yet they, they couldn't, you know, you can't close that border. Waves and waves of settlers came in from the south, uh, from Missouri and from Arkansas and from Louisiana and from other, other southern states like that. Waves of them, Tennessee, came into Texas and the Mexican government could not stop them because it was it was you know a very weak government it just didn't have the ability to patrol such a huge area and now think about this if you have a person in Texas who has uh you know as a native texan who's been there for generations if their parents immigrated into Texas from the US between 1830 and 1835 their parents or their you know their their forefathers so to speak um, not parents, of course, the time doesn't add up. But their, but their forefathers would have been illegal aliens into Texas. Going in, stealing up land, taking jobs. All those arguments apply to many of the forefathers of current day Texans. 
kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? Okay, so 1835, 1836, uh, Texas fought its uh, a war of independence, and I'm I'm pro war of independence. I'm pro uh, I'm pro people. I'm for people separating themselves from government. Uh, the, the bad part is, you know, what the first thing they did, set up a government. So again, you trade one, one boss for another and you don't accomplish what you think you're going to accomplish. So that's where we're at in our narrative. Uh, and, and I'm going to break for this commercial. When I get back, we'll take off on the, uh, on Texas's War of Independence. Okay. Thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. So 1835-1836, Texas fought its War of Independence. The Republic of Texas actually held about half the land that we currently call Texas. If you pull up a map and and look at the uh, look at the map of Texas, um, just like pull up a Google map or whatever, and uh, and hold it over Texas, only about half of what we now call Texas was actually held by the Republic of Texas. But the Republic of Texas claimed an area about three times that size, going all the way north to, into Wyoming and way out westward. They never actually uh, made any kind of serious attempt even to control that land, but they claimed it. Part of that land was actively claimed by, by Mexico, um, but part of it was way off into Indian territory that, that, that Spain had no right over when they were there and certainly Mexico didn't have any right over it. This, uh, this disputed land that I'm talking about, it rightfully belonged to neither Texas nor Mexico. Neither of them had any kind of legitimate claim on this land, especially, you know, the most northern and western parts. Like I said, all the way to Wyoming? Come on. Uh, by what right? None. By none, by somebody in Europe a couple hundred years earlier saying, I, I, I think that's ours. That's it? That's all you got? The disputed land, um, it was actually occupied. There were two powerful native societies that operated voluntary governments um, that had successfully held off Spanish attempts at expansion. The Comanches and the Apaches, along with several smaller allies, never succumbed to the Spanish, nor to the Texans, certainly not to the Mex- to Mexico. And the further west you go, the Spanish never expanded into the lands of the powerful Shoshone people, nor did the Spanish ever subjugate the Navajo. So you have four major uh, nations here, along with several smaller tribes, that were never... Uh, the, the point of conquest from the Spanish. They never conquered them. So what right did they have to, to that land? They had none. They, if you, if you again, pull up a map of the western United States and have a look at where modern-day Texas is. Now, only, like I said a minute ago, only about half of modern-day Texas was actually in the control of the, uh, uh, of the Republic of Texas. Look up through about half of what is now modern-day New Mexico and a big chunk of Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, Nebraska, and all the way into Wyoming. A big chunk of that. Um, actually, I'm not sure if it went into Nebraska or not, but it definitely went through uh, Colorado and up into Wyoming. This was this disputed land. And if you look on a map that actually shows like where mountains are and so forth, you'll see the Rocky Mountains uh, coming down out of southern Wyoming, down through the middle of Colorado, and then bleeding down right through the middle of uh, New Mexico. Well, from the from the um, from the the Rocky Mountains 
westward all the way to the Sierra Nevadas in eastern California and as high north as about mid-Oregon and the whole western, southwestern corner of Idaho and almost all of Utah and a good portion of northern Arizona was controlled uh, by the Shoshone. The Shoshone were never subjugated by by Spain. So that land could not belong to Spain. Um, that big chunk of land, including the Rockies and that whole part of uh, West Texas up through Oklahoma, all the way up into Wyoming, that was the land of the Comanches and, uh, and a little further to the west and south, the Apaches. And that land was never conquered by Spain and never conquered by Mexico and never conquered by, um, by Texas. So uh, what right did they have to it? Uh, what right do you have just to, for a politician just to draw on a map and say that's ours now? Um, so, so the, so the land claims of uh, the Republic of Texas are not only were they questionable, but, uh, the Mexican government didn't recognize them. And so you had this no man's land, especially down in the southwestern tip of Texas, that it was kind of an unspoken agreement, okay, you know, you keep your troops out, we'll keep our troops out. And that's that's how we keep from having war. Uh, Texas and Mexico um, don't have to have war because both of them realize this is disputed land, so they stay out of it. Now, when two nations have a dispute over land, you can settle it in a couple of different ways. Uh, you can go to war, or you can ask a neutral third party to help you settle the dispute. Well, they didn't do that. Instead... Uh, well, I'll, I'll get to what they did instead in just a second here. Now, another problem with this disputed land is that after Mexico won its war of independence from Spain, the U.S. government, either intentionally or simply by looking the other way, supported and possibly even supplied uh, Comanches to raid into Mexico. And uh, if nothing else, um, you know, folks in the U.S. were buying goods and trading with the Comanches, that they stuff that they had gone into Mexico and taken and brought back into uh, the U.S. and were trading with the with the white settlers in uh, in in the U.S. So either uh, and it's a little fuzzy. Either the U.S. government was intentionally involved in this activity, or they knew about it and then they were looking the other way. The Mexican government at the time. Uh, made the accusation that the U.S. government was actively supporting the Comanche raids into uh, what Mexico considered to be its land, and the Comanches considered to be their land. So we've got this hanging over us before this, before the war with Mexico even starts. We've got this disputed land between Texas and Mexico, and we've got the Comanches uh, basically saying, look, it's our land. And the same thing with the um, Apaches. It, you know, it's their land. It, how can it not be? They were there long before there was ever a Mexico or a Texas. So now, at this point in the in in uh, in the podcast, uh, I have a phrase that I'm going to keep in my notes. I, sa- I said this in the first one about the War of 1812, and I'll say this in, in later uh, podcasts about other wars. But um, but I, I like to go through and I like to first lay out the lies that are used to justify the war, and then I put the actual reasons for the war, and the actual reasons always come down to money and power. Um, th- there's a problem with that. In the War of Mexico, there's very few lies about the War of Mexico. There's the, the Thornton Affair, and I'll t- cover that in a minute. But other than the Thornton Affair, 
there's very few lies about the war with Mexico. The D.C. government largely embraced the aggressive expansionism, the so-called manifest destiny. James Polk uh, won the presidency in 1844 by campaigning on his aggressive desire to annex Texas, to take uh, California and New Mexico from Mexico, and to take the whole of the Oregon Territory, including the whole Pacific coast of Canada. You ever you ever remember that phrase? You may have heard it in school. Uh, Fifty-four, forty, or fight. A uh, Polk, uh, among others, wanted to take. Uh, all of the northern parts of, uh, all of the western parts of Canada, all the way to the Russian border. That's where 5440 is, uh, is, you know, the bottom of, uh, Alaska. And that's what Polk wanted. He wanted to completely cut, uh, Canada off from the Pacific. And he wanted to take the entire Pacific coast of Canada and all the the uh, the Pacific coast all the way down into Mexico. He wanted that. He wanted the whole thing, and he campaigned on that. And and this was um, uh, this aggression was open on the part of uh, of the U.S. It was not. There's no reason to lie. But you know, we, they lied about the War of 1812. There was a lot of lies to justify the War of 1812. There were a lot of lies to justify. Uh, you know, Lincoln's aggression during the so-called Civil War. There were lies that were utilized to uh, to get the U.S. into uh, attacking uh, Spain in the uh, in the Spanish-American War. There were all kinds of lies to get World War One started. But in this weird uh, war with Mexico, there was very other than, like I said, other than the Thornton affair, there was there was no lies. They just openly wanted it. They wanted it. You're weak. I'm going to take it. It was just like that. There was no other justification necessary. Mexico's weak. U.S. is strong. We want this. We're taking it. Essentially, the war on Mexico was a rebirth of the motives of the War of 1812. It was just that they were open about them now. Um, but once Polk got elected to avoid another, you know, possibly devastating war with Great Britain, uh, Polk compromised on Oregon and cut a deal with Canada, and then he attacked Mexico. Um, it would have been really stupid. I, I mean, and I, I, I'd like to use a softer word, but it would have been really stupid to try to take on Great Britain at that time. Uh, Great Britain was not actively in a major war. You see, you know, we had already fought Great Britain twice. The U.S. had fought Great Britain twice. Well, actually, the U.S. only fought it once in the War of 1812. Um, the U.S. didn't exist. I said that a minute ago. The U.S. didn't exist during the uh, uh, War of Independence. But uh, the American people had fought uh, Great Britain twice. And Great Britain was actively involved in other wars at the time and couldn't really deal with the American problem. But in Polk's day, at the time of the uh, Mexican-American War, Great Britain had nothing better to do than to come and crush the U.S. if it needed to. So it was very wise of Polk not to take on uh, an invasion of Canada at that particular time. So he compromised, and they split the, the uh, Oregon Territory, and that's where we get our, our current-day border with Canada in the Oregon area. So then, uh, so then Polk invades Mexico, right? He attacks Mexico. The Southern Democrats loved this war because they saw the whole of Mexico... Uh, becoming slave states. They didn't want just a little area. They wanted all of Mexico. And they wanted it all to become slave states so that it, w- because, uh, this would tip the balance in the argument of the, uh, of the slavery issue. It would tip the balance toward the South, and the South would have, 
the ability to completely take over American politics. And that was the goal. And that's why the Southern, uh, the Southern Democrats love this war. Now, I should mention that, you know, uh, if, if, if I recall, Polk was a, um, uh, a Whig. So, so this is how he got, he got crossover support from the Southern Democrats. But if I recall, and I could be wrong on this, it's not in my notes, but if I recall, Polk was a Whig. Uh, but a lot of the Whigs opposed the war. And the, and the reason why that they opposed it was because Polk had compromised on the Oregon issue. They wanted war with Canada. And, um, and they wanted to expand, uh, northern interests, the non-slave states. They wanted to expand that all the way up to the Russian border. And so when Polk, uh, you know, uh, when he double-crossed the the uh, the Northerners, then all of a sudden they were opposed to the war with Mexico. See, they were fine with the war in Mexico if they got Canada too. So, so it would be again, it's over the slavery issue. They could have, uh, you know, all the the Oregon area to be non-slave and divided up into non-slave states, and that way all of Mexico could be divided up into slaves into pro-slave states, and you would keep this balance of power of the of the slavery and the non-slavery, which you know really and truly the the U.S. government, the the politicians in there were using this slave no slave thing as the as the Democrat Republican excuse of the day. That's what. Nowadays, we have the Democrats and the Republicans fighting over these pet, petty issues that they never really solve. Well, that's what the, that's the whole thing that they had back then. They had these two parties, the Whigs and the, and the uh, Democrats, and they could constantly fight back and forth about slavery and keep the nation divided while they just did anything else they wanted to. So in, um, in 1845, the year before the war, Polk commissioned John C. Fremont as a U.S. Army captain and sent him with a troop of mercenaries to invade California. Now, when the Mexican authorities discovered them and ordered them, ordered them to leave, uh, Fremont responded by building a fort and raising the American flag. This was the first invasion of Mexico by the D.C. government, and it happened in California, and it happened the year before the war uh, was officially declared. But you have to remember, Fremont was a very smart man, and he was in the company of some very smart men. These these mercenaries, they didn't uh, they didn't provoke a, f- a fight with the Mexican government. They um, when the confrontation happened, they ret- re- retreated into Northern California and kind of went underground and started uh, you know uh, getting uh, working uh, covertly to try to stir up enough uh, as much p- trouble as they could in California against the Mexicans. Now, about the same time that Polk uh, ordered the first invasion of Mexico by Fremont, he secretly sent uh, emissaries to Mexico, to the Mexican government, and offered them $25 million to, aff- to avoid uh, war and just give up uh, all the northern uh, areas of Mexico. This was uh, Polk's hope that he could just buy off the Mexican government, take half of Mexico, and that way he wouldn't have to fight the war. Well, in an odd way, that would have been a lot cheaper than actually fighting the war. But there was a problem in negotiating with Mexico. Uh, in 1846, the presidency of Mexico changed hands four times. The war ministry changed hands six times. And the Ministry of Finance, the people, uh, the people who Polk's, uh, uh, emissary would have had to deal with to negotiate a deal like this, the Ministry of Finance, uh, exchanged, um, uh, the, the head of that 
was switched 16 times in the year 1846 in Mexico. So, you know, technically, technically speaking, there was no functional government to even receive Polk's offer. There was, there was nobody there to say yes or no. So after, in frustration, you know, the, the embassy came home as like, I don't even know who to talk to about this. They don't, they basically don't have a government down there. Well, that was like a big red flag going off. You know, Polk was like, great. What better time? So, uh, you know, what does he do? Uh, they're not, they're not, the Mexican government's not even capable of getting together and negotiating or even turning down an offer. Well, yeah, they're that weak. What are we going to do? Let's attack them. Of course. So that's what Polk did. Um, he sent a little troop of, uh, of about 70 guys. And I should say that 100% of my, uh, 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 sources for this podcast today come from Wikipedia. Everything that I'm telling you is available in Wikipedia. Um, the problem is there's contrary and contradicting things in Wikipedia. And even in, in the battle that I'm about to tell you about, this, uh, the 70-man patrol that Polk sent into Mexican territory, uh, Wikipedia doesn't even get the numbers. I mean, it, it contradicts itself on the numbers. So, uh, so, so this is fairly close probably, but maybe not. So anyway, but according to Wikipedia, uh, the 70 man patrol that Polk had sent in, um, were, were very aggressively moving through Mexican occupied territory. And they basically stumbled into a 2000 strong Mexican cavalry unit that resulted in, uh, in 16 of their group being killed and 49 being captured. This is what's called the Thornton affair. Uh, Thornton was the uh, the commander of this little seventy man patrol. Thornton himself was killed in the uh, uh, well. He was wounded and then he died later in the uh, in the uh, action. The Thornton affair became the official justification for going to war. Polk, uh, you know, he needed a declaration of war, so he went to Congress and he addressed Congress. And in his very famous speech, he said, and this is quotes. But now, after reiterated menaces, Mexico has passed the boundary of the United States, has invaded our territory, and shed American blood upon the American soil. She has proclaimed that hostilities have commenced and that the two nations are now at war. Polk lied to Congress, and the majority uh, were willingly believing this lie, and they declared war on Mexico. Not everybody believed this lie. Uh, As a matter of fact, you know, uh, some notable people did not believe this lie. But it it is odd that he used these words. He says um, uh, that the two nations are now at war, because that's almost identical to the words that Franklin Roosevelt copied from him, I believe he copied them from him, when he declared that the United States was at a, was already in a state of war and that we have to get the declaration of war so that uh, Roosevelt could attack Germany, even though it was Japan that attacked the U.S. But anyway, so it is kind of odd that, that um, a U.S. president provokes a fight and then proclaims that we're now in a state of war. So, in a very real way, James K. Polk knowingly ordered those 16 men to their death. If, uh, if you're familiar with the story of David in the Bible, David murdered Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. David murdered him, and the way he murdered him was he ordered, uh, he ordered, uh, Uriah's group 
to press up close to the wall. And then he ordered uh, the rest of the group to pull back and leave um, Uriah fighting alone at the wall. And this was in a battle of siege, a siege battle. And so uh, so David killed Uriah by sending him into a mission that he absolutely knew was set up, and he absolutely knew Uriah would die in it. His orders killed Uriah, and that's exactly what James K. Polk did. James K. Polk murdered Seth Thornton and the 15 others. And there's really no logical way that you can look at it other than that. Now, there are, uh, like I said, there are some contradicting stories in Wikipedia, and in one version of it, like everybody in the whole group was killed except one that magically escaped to tell the tale, and, you know, I don't know, whatever. Um, but the fact remains, James K. Polk ordered Seth Thornton into a into an unwinnable situation and sacrificed him and the other 15 people so that Polk could have his little war. When I get back, we'll, uh, we'll continue. Okay, thanks for sticking with me. So, so Polk, uh, Polk invades Mexico on two different fronts. He invades in California with Fremont, but Fremont's smart enough not to get himself killed. Fremont's smart enough not to, not to actually engage the Mexicans in battle, so he moves around and keeps quiet. Then he openly, when he, when Polk finds out how weak the Mexican government is, Polk, uh, openly invades um, Mexico in southern Texas, in, in West Texas, and uh, I guess it's southern Texas, down on the uh, on the Rio Grande, and so Polk initiates aggression twice in order to get actual fighting to take place, so that he can then lie to Congress and say that Mexico attacked the U.S. And people in the day knew he was lying. It, it was not a big. It was not hard to spot this. Um, you know, I, I hate to uh, I hate to quote Ada, Abraham Lincoln in a positive light, but Abraham Lincoln, uh, much like you know the anti uh, anti war Obama from the early two thousands. Remember how Obama was all anti war in the early two thousands, and then once he gets control, once he gets the reins in his hands, then it's just war, war, war. Remember how Obama was like that? Well, that's how Abe Lincoln was. Abe Lincoln. Uh, was against the war. He called it fake. He said it was fake, and he and he shouted at Polk, "Show me the spot!" Because Polk had said that American blood was shed on American land and all this kind of thing. And so Lincoln yelled, "Show me the spot!" Because Lincoln knew that was not American land. Lincoln, a lot, a lot of others knew that Polk had uh, had initiated the aggression, had invaded Mexico, and the deaths took place on Mexican territory. Lincoln knew that. And, and yelled that to him. All right, now, another one, Whig, uh, Whig uh, by the name of Robert Toombs, T-O-O-M-B-S, of Georgia. Uh, on the House floor, he said, This war is nondescript. We charge the president with usurping the war-making power, with seizing a country which had been for centuries and was then in the possession of the Mexicans. Let us put, let us put a check upon this lust of, of domination, we had territories enough, heaven knew. So Polk was only fooling the people that wanted to be fooled by Polk. Uh, most people realized and understood that this was a war of aggression, that, that it was nothing more than a land grab. Uh, Henry David Thoreau refused to pay taxes to support this war, the war on Mexico. He was jailed and he penned his essay, Civil Disobedience, in response to Polk's invasion of Mexico. 
Um, the fact that the invasion of Mexico was thinly veiled, uh, it was it was really an attempt to expand slavery into, uh, and, and that was really more than obvious to people at the time. Seventy nine year old John Quincy Adams denounced the war as a blatant act of aggression. Um, he even gave a speech to Congress saying, this poor old man, 79 years old, wants to address Congress. And he goes before Congress and um, and he says that, it, that the, it is nothing but a blatant effort to expand slavery. It was one of uh, John Quincy Adams' final acts before he died. He, he died just a couple of years later. Ulysses S. Grant, who actually fought in the war, he said this, and this is a, a quote of Ulysses S. Grant in reference to the invasion of Mexico. He said, Generally, the officers of the army were indifferent whether the annexation was consummated or not, but not all of them so. For myself, I was bitterly opposed to the measure, and to this day regard the war, which resulted as one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation. It was an instance of a republic following the bad example of European monarchies in not considering justice in their desire to acquire additional territory. I, I hate to quote Ulysses S. Grant in a positive light either, but it was obvious, even to him as a, as a soldier, that what they were doing was wrong. They had no right to invade Mexico, and they did it anyway, because they wanted land, and that's what it was all about. They wanted to expand slavery, and they wanted to push out and have more slave states, and that was the whole purpose of it. Um, and, and the accusation that Mexico would invade Texas was, Polk knew that this was crazy to begin with. Um, Mexico um, had not, would not, and could not be the aggressor because the government of Mexico was in such a state of disorder that there was n there was no single person to give such an order. Nobody in Mexico would have had the yeah, had a reason or the guts to say, "Hey, I know, let's get in a war with the U.S." They were in a horrible situation. But Polk actually made the argument later on that the war with Mexico was good for Mexico. Because Mexico was too big to be managed by such a weak Mexican government. And besides, you know, Polk says, uh, look, Mexico's gonna profit from the war. You know, war's good for the economy, right? There's, uh, you know, the old saying is there's nothing new under the sun. 37 years before John Maynard Keynes was even born, Polk, uh, Polk, <laughs> Polk believed Keynesianism, Keynesian economics. The, the lies that Keynes laid out to justify uh, the horrors of government, Polk was uh, was spouting that stuff 37 years before Keynes was even born. So the U.S. invasion of Mexico opened the opportunity also for an interesting thing to happen. Santa Ana, who had uh, you know who had been basically ejected from Mexico, used the opportunity of the war to re-enter Mexico and attempt to seize power. Santa Ana tried to defeat, uh, to defeat the U.S. forces and grab control of the Mexican government. Now, he failed at both, but that was, that was his purpose. That was his intent. And, um, and you know, the war itself was not, was not a good thing at all. And, and you may say, well, duh, that's obvious. Of course the war wasn't a good thing. But, no, it was really, um, you know, the war with Mexico set a situation up that was far worse than the war with Mexico. Um, almost every major player in the war with Mexico also uh, was a major player in the Civil War. 
the all the generals learn their craft, if you could say it that way. Uh, all the generals of the civil of the what was later called the Civil War, the so-called Civil War, the generals of the Civil War learned their craft with their war of aggression on Mexico. Uh, and also, you know, in many ways, the war on Mexico made Lincoln's uh, war of aggression on the South made it absolutely inevitable. It's it it uh, threw off the power structure. Um, the the Whig Party temporarily secured power because of this, but uh, internally it weakened the party. It it caused a split in the in the Whig Party, and Lincoln took advantage of that and developed the uh, the Republican Party out of that. And then, so the Whig Party, even though it was the majority party and it was in power, um, because of the split that Lincoln put in the with with his Republicans, um, it put the Democrats into a, a feeling of false power. And at the same time, you know, the Democrats had gotten burned because they didn't get the um, all the new Southern slave states that they would that they believed that they would be getting. The reason they supported the war to begin with, well, they didn't get those. They got double crossed. And they didn't get the new slave states. So it weakened the South, um, politically speaking. But it all, but even though, uh, again, even though the Whig power, uh, the Whig party had more power, it actually caused this schism, this split in the Whig, in the Whig party that allowed the Republicans to come up into power. And this allowed Lincoln to take the Republican side of it. And, uh, and get elected. The nasty monster Lincoln essentially got elected because, uh, Polk, uh, drug the U.S. into an invasion of Mexico. Now here's some other things about this that were not so great. Um, if you include battlefield deaths, uh, and, they, and we're talking just U.S. casualties because there are no hard numbers on Mexico's, uh, casualties. But if you include battlefield deaths, and if you include deaths due to injuries from the war, and if you include um, deaths caused by the diseases that were acquired during the war, because you have to remember, you know, you got guys from like Connecticut uh, suddenly being dumped on the beach and invading Me- in central Mexico and in, in uh, southern Mexico even. And so they're exposed to all kinds of um, tropical diseases that they have no uh, resistance to, and you know they're not accustomed to it in any way. So if you include all the deaths involved with disease, injuries, and actual battlefield uh, deaths uh, resulting from the uh, United States invading Mexico, you have uh, you have a forty percent casualty rate in the U.S. military. The U.S. military suffered a forty percent casualty rate. So if you consider the casualty rate like that. Um, it was by far the worst uh, American war ever, worst, worst, you know, uh, casualty rates uh, of any American war. Now, also keep in mind that Polk, um, Polk double-crossed the Northern Warhawks by by compromising on Canada uh, and then invading Mexico, and Polk double-crossed the Southern Warhawks by stopping short and failing to annex all of Mexico. And then once the former Whig and now Republican Lincoln came into power, the full impact of the invasion of Mexico became apparent. As many as 700,000 Americans died due to Lincoln's war of aggression. Uh, and that was, you know, uh, it was kind of like um, Mexico was kind of like the training ground for Lincoln's war. The history of the U.S. conquest of Mexico, uh, it fades in the light 
of the bloodiest event North America ever witnessed, Lincoln's War. So in a very real way, you know, um, the Polk's invasion of Mexico set the, set the scene, set the situation up so that in, in every way, politically speaking, militarily, um, the, uh, the, the so-called civil war was an absolute guaranteed event. Uh, and and I, and I may or may not, I'm not sure, I may or may not do a, a whole podcast just on Lincoln's War of Aggression and how, you know, what you've been told about Fort Sumter and all that, uh, that's all a lie. And, and, you know, I may go into that, I'm not sure. But one way or the other, it's critical to understand that there would have been no civil war had there not been an invasion of Mexico and the results that came from it. Now, in addition to all of that, there's uh, one other thing that took place. You see, the U.S., like I said before, the U.S. had either been actively supporting the Comanche or at least, you know, at least uh, turning a blind eye to their activities. But once the war with Mexico was over, the once, uh, once useful Comanches were now this awkward inconvenience, an awkward inconvenience to the U.S., but um, but it was an inconvenience that was solved by William Tecumseh, uh, Tecumseh Sherman. William Tecumseh Sherman had uh, had a final solution: total war. He had perfected it. First, learning in uh, in the war on Mexico, then honing it and perfecting it in the Civil War, and then turning it on the uh, American Indians and slaughtering vast sums of them and, you know, uh, destroying their food sources, driving them to starvation. The, the Very much the war, uh, the invasion, the U.S. invasion of Mexico laid the groundwork for the destruction of the, of not only the, uh, the Comanche as a people, but also of, of the Apache and in the northern tribes, uh, the Lakota and the others. Um, this was all uh, directly tied to the results of this manifest destiny, this, this idea that God, that God would sanction a government and, and that, that God would bless this activity of slaughtering, of killing, just for the sheer purpose of the U.S. government gaining more glory and more power and more land and more money. This is American expansionism. Now, consider what you've been taught about the war with Mexico. You've probably been taught nothing. Uh, American schools, you know, here's another phrase that I was uh, was going to put on each of these podcasts. Um, I was going to say that uh, uh, the lies that stand today, and then I was going to list the lies about the event. I did this with the War of 1812. I'll say, I was going to say, the lies that stand today are like this, and American school children are taught this, and then I, then I tell what the lies that, th- that they're taught. But the American school children are not taught anything about the war with Mexico, because it's impossible to, to tell the story of the war with Mexico without exposing the blind and, th- and flagrant aggression of the United States government without it's impossible to teach it without without doing this now sure you can you can lie about that one attack 
in uh, in, te- in you know in Mexico in Texas. But other than that one event, the whole rest of the story can't be told without showing that you, that the U.S. was completely the aggressor, that the U.S. initiated the war, that the U.S. took advantage of a time when the government in Mexico was weak and couldn't respond. And they attacked them in two different fronts at the same time with two different invasions. It's impossible to tell the story of the war in Mexico without going into this stuff. So consider what you're taught about the war in Mexico. You're probably taught nothing. And yet, here it is. Here it is, the seeds of the Civil War. Here it is, the seeds of the extermination of the uh, American Indians. It's all right there in that one act. Now, at this point... And I said this uh, almost word for word in the last podcast about the War of 1812. Oh, I, I need to say this too. You, you need to understand this is not a condemnation of the American culture or the American people. It's a condemnation of the U.S. government and of the religious notion that having faith in the concept of the state is anything other than an act of blasphemy. So, um, So at this point... I hope I've established that the U.S. government, in conjunction with the media, select corporations, government schools, and government-approved private schools, has systematically distorted and lied about its reasons for war. It shouldn't be a shock to you when you hear the next part of this podcast series, and it shouldn't be a shock to you when you hear how you've been lied to about Pearl Harbor and about the reasons for World War II and about the economic impact of World War II, and it shouldn't shock you to learn the true reason that the state loves war. So, folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission.